We are going to be all over the place in First and Second Samuel, so just that general, general area. Thank you, Lord, so much for a chance to look into your word now, and I just ask that you would help us to see what it is that you want us to see. These things are here for our instruction and for us to learn from. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study and as we look at these things, there would be truths that come to us in such a way that we know you are speaking directly to us and to our hearts. And so we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Please be seated. It was about maybe 8 or 9 o'clock last night that I said to myself, you know, the next time you want to do a survey on, on David in one week, think more about it and don't do it. Because you know, you've got 30, 40 chapters that you're having to go through and say, okay, I'm, I, I know the story, what's the detail? And then in the end say, okay, now what is it that I'm going to share? Because I want to share critical, important things. And, and the title is kind of important here. The best of times and the worst of times. And I obviously stole that from some guy in England. But the, the, rea- <laughs> the reality is, in the life of David, you've got a whole bunch of stuff that would fall into the category of the best of times. And then there's a few that fall into the worst of times. And so as I approached this week, what I was trying to do was to say, let's look at both those two categories Because you can't study the life of David, you can't study David the king without saying, okay, here's all this amazing, wonderful stuff, and then there's these other things too. And I don't want to gloss over either one, I want to take some time on those and just look at them. Now just throw this quote back up there that we started with a couple weeks ago. Israel, in the book of Samuel, um, is in transition. From the book of Judges on into 1 Samuel, you've got... Israel that used to be ruled kind of in a tribal sense by judges in different places and sometimes a a judge that would be over several uh, is moving from tribes ruled by judges to a unified kingdom. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel. By the end of 1 Samuel that has happened and now by the end of 1 Samuel and on into 2 Samuel David has become king. So just kind of go ahead and put that next one up there if you would. Just kind of to give you a sense of this is kind of the flow as you go through the the history of Israel. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph considered the big four, the founders, if you will, starting with Abraham. Then you've got that 400 years that are they are in Egypt in the Exodus. And, of course, Moses who brings them out out of there. And they get to the Promised Land, and Joshua then becomes the leader of the nation of Israel. And they cross the Jordan, and they do the settling down and the conquest of the actual nation of Israel. It's in that judge's time period where we hear the phrase, every man did what was right in his own eyes, as opposed to what was right in the eyes of God. And so the people came along, and and, and what they really were saying, I think when they were asking for a king, was this other thing isn't working. The judges kind of separated and all over the place isn't helping us. So let's get one person to help us be able to unify the nation and to keep pointing us to God. And if you study the books of Kings and Chronicles, if there was a godly king who was pursuing God, that's what happened. They did follow God and they did obey God. And the times of prosperity that they had as a nation flowed out of those settings where the king really pursued God. If there was an evil king or a king who was half-hearted in his pursuit of God... The nation suffered. And so when we think through what it was that they wanted and what they were looking for, they were looking for a David, not a Saul. 
And we saw Saul last week, and we saw that he started out kind of good, and then eventually God said, I'm taking it away from you. You, you are not doing what I put you there to do. I'm going to bring David, who is a man after my own heart. So we're going to be kind of heading into that. <clears throat> and as I was looking back over this pasture, and, I, and of course I thought about the best of times, worst of times, and, and every now and then I, I like to stop and say, okay, so now if I was going to categorize a year as a bad, bad year, and then another one is a good year. I, there's one that just kind of jumped to the top of my bad years, you know, and that's kind of just very, very recent. Um, it probably is for a lot of people. Now, when I think of a good year, I, you know, I don't have any that would, that would jump out and say, oh, man, this was the best year. I wish I could have another year like that. Um, and, and on one level, that's kind of what you're doing here with David. There's, there's the sense of th- when he was walking with God, that was most of his life. He was amazing. I mean, he did incredible things for God. And then when he got a little bit twisted the wrong way, there's some real bad things that happened. So David, in his best of times, was a shepherd, a poet, a musician, a giant killer, a warrior, a king, an ancestor of Jesus. And that's in his best of times. And then David, in his worst of times, was a betrayer, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer. And that's his worst of times. Now, let's go ahead and take some time to study those two categories together this morning. Um, I'm just going to go through these briefly. David's success, or the best of times for David. I think we'll just start with Goliath. We kind of studied him last week, but that was kind of a high point, wasn't it? I mean, here he comes, and there's this giant that's making all of Israel miserable, and they're scared to death to go to war against the Philistines. And David comes in and kills Goliath, and it turns everything around. They chase after the Philistines, and there's a victory there. So that's, that's a big success for David. This other one's a little different, but I think it is too. He did not kill Saul on the opportunities that he could have. David was of the opinion, this man was anointed by God, and until God removes him and puts me in place, I'm not touching the guy. And then, of course, you remember the two scenes that happened where, you know, Saul goes into the cave, and I love that the New Translations all say, well, he went in to relieve himself. And apparently David and the men are way back further in the cave. And this one, my imagination kind of goes on a little bit, but I won't take you there. But he cuts off a piece of his robe while he's in the midst of doing whatever he's doing. And he doesn't know it. And then he leaves the cave, and David comes out and waves it and says, Hey, I could have, could have killed you, but I didn't. And, 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 of course, he leaves and goes home. The other one is he's chasing David again with 3,000 elite soldiers, and they're very close to each other. And, and, and late at night, Saul is sleeping in the center of a, a whole bunch of soldiers that are watching over him who are also sleeping. And David gets into the circle, takes Saul's spear and his water skin, and he leaves. And, of course, there's that same thing. Hey, we could have killed you. We didn't. But one of the things that I really, really love about this is it points out that David was serious when he said, God anointed him, and until God takes him out, it's not going to be me that does it. And a little bit further down the road, of course, God does do that with him. Another part of David's success He was a poet and a musician. Of course, he played the harp. We know that. But 75 out of the 150 psalms were written by David. 75 of them. And some of them were written in the midst of incredible horror. I mean, things that are just terrible and going very badly. And it's fascinating to me that many times we will tell someone who's struggling, have you read through the psalms lately? 
Because the Psalms is a great place where God puts in David, by you know, being uh, inspired by God, puts to words a lot of what he was feeling and thinking in the horrendous situations that he was living. And so many people down through the centuries have been able to go to the Psalms and say, that's exactly what I'm feeling. And of course, see what David then does, which is, again, over and over, point them back to the Lord. Um, Psalm 3, verses 1 and 3 says this, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. and You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. So, just, just one example. So many places where David shows that he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's a poet and a musician in powerful ways. Man of prayer. All the way through the, the books of First and Second Samuel, you'll find David... Asking God, well, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? As a matter of fact, in Second Samuel two one, David, said, this is after Saul has been killed. Should I go back to the towns of Israel? He's been living over near the Philistines and in other places. And the Lord answers, yes. He says, well, where do you want me to go? What town? And he tells him, you need to go back to Hebron. And so he goes back. Why? Because he's praying. He's asking God for direction, and God answers and says, this is where you need to be. And then you've got. What I think is an incredible thing. Remember, Saul reigned for 47 years, but the last 10, 15 years were tremendously harsh times. I mean, he even went and saw a medium trying to raise Samuel from the dead so he could talk to him. And um, here David comes and he becomes king just over Judah, uh, just after the death of Saul. And he's king of Judah for seven and a half years. Just Judah. Um, during that time frame, there's an ongoing kind of back and forth civil war where the forces of people loyal to Saul that are fighting the David and people that are loyal to him. Eventually that all uh, is taken care of and, and the rest of the nation comes and asks David to be king and they anoint him as well. And he continues for 33 years as king of the united israel and david was able to take a fractured nation bring it back together and make it one that's a powerful powerful thing that he was able to do um and in verse 12 of chapter 5 second Samuel, this is what it says about that time frame david knew that the lord had established him as king over israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people israel and so here's, here's David saying, or, you know, they're saying about David that God established him, but it wasn't to make David big and fancy and all. It was for the nation, that they would be able to be led by a man who was really a seeker of God. <clears throat> so that's the, the heart of, uh, I'm sorry, that's bringing the nation together. The next one is he had a heart for God. Um, and, and the Lord God is the one who said that about him when he said to Saul, you're done, you're finished, uh, your kingdom is over with, and I've raised up a man who is a man after my own heart. And he's speaking that about David. 
1 Samuel 13, 14. And what we mean by a man after God's own heart is a man who was focused on God and obedient to God and loyal to God and, and tried to think the way God thought. Matter of fact, as he's leading the nation, what he wants to do is to lead the nation according to the Old Testament law which they've been given. He wants to lead the nation in a way that honors and worships and puts God first as a nation. That's his goal. And so he had a heart for God. This is an, another one of those ones that's kind of fun. He's an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? In Matthew 1, 1 it says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And so there in Matthew you get that whole genealogy starting right away. And so here you've got Jesus the Messiah. Where did he come from? David and Abraham. And then, they, of course, he fills in the rest of the, the genealogy after that. He's also a man of faith, and we don't see that from the Old Testament other than in the examples of all the different places where he acted in faith. But the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> now, it's interesting. <laughs> Hebrews gives us his name and nothing else, basically. But that's okay. Second Samuel gives us 40 chapters all about David. So, you know, he's not being ignored in the Scriptures. It's just that when it comes to these people, it's at the end of the book of Hebrews, verse 32, how much more do I need to say... It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and then all the prophets. All the prophets. He said, you know, I I don't have time to tell those stories. And then he says, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. Now, that's true of many of those people in that list. But really true of David. You know, what did he do? Well, he overthrew kingdoms that were against against Israel. What did he do? Well, he ruled with justice and, and godliness. And what did he do? Well, he received the promises that God had made to him, and those things came true. So he was a man of faith. And then the last one, actually a lot of Second Samuel you could go to and see. The, the chapter 8 took a chapter to give you some of that. Uh, he was victorious in battle. The Lord made Dave's victories, made David victorious wherever he went, it says in 2 Samuel 8, 14. And if you go back and look at it, <clears throat> there's a bunch of city-state nations kind of all around, and the nations would get bigger, and they would go out and conquer each other and steal stuff back and forth from each other. Well, David came along, and he conquered Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, Amalek, and Zobah. All those were, they were conquered. They were, um, many of them were, were killed in war, and then the rest of them paid tribute. So David began receiving tribute from all of these nations. So he was victorious in all those things. Now, we could probably find a whole bunch more of the things that would be in that category of the success or the best of times of David, but I'm going to just leave, leave those there and just go to an implication. Again, going back to the period of the judges, and, and you read the book of Judges and you get towards the end and you go, this is terrible. It is just gross and awful. And, and one of the reasons we say that we see that God has inspired this word is that he doesn't hide the awful, sinful things his people have done. He puts them down there as a lesson that we learn from them. And so Judges is there, and, and you read Judges, and it's dark, and it's on one level, you, you just, you just kind of want to get through Judges and get over with it. And then you've got this kind of shining ray of hope that comes as, as okay, we're going to have a king. And, and Saul looks really good at first. And then Saul begins to look like some of the judges that, that weren't so great. 
And then you've got David that comes along. He's like the breath of fresh air. And he comes in and he loves God. Loves God's word. And he, and he loves to lead the people of Israel in pursuing and seeking after God. And so at, what, at that point you begin to say, okay, so the people who, who realized they didn't want to do things in, that were okay in their own eyes, they wanted to do what was right in God's own eyes, they've got a king that can help them do that. And that's David. David put his heart and his thoughts on God and he sought to draw the people and to have them follow with him as he did that. And, and so he, he united the tribes. He brought them together. He, he wrote songs and hymns so that people would sing and gather for worship. And it's just, it just kind of poured out of him. Um, David came along and showed his character by not taking advantage of situations he could have. David reached out in kindness to even those who had been left behind from Saul's family and, and treated them well and treated them with respect. And David is one who sought after God, even during the bitter times when Saul was trying to kill him. And that went on for an extended period of time, a number of years. David still continued to seek after God. There were times when you read some of those psalms of lament that you say, Oh my goodness, how's this guy ever going to survive? Well, because he's pouring out his heart to God and trusting God in spite of how he feels. And you see that all through the psalms. It's a wonderful thing that we learn. And finally, David is established, solidified in position as king over all of Israel. And 2 Samuel 8.15 says this, So David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all his people. You want to put something on someone's tombstone that would be really good. That's, that's a great one right there. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. Did he sin and fall? And in some cases, tragically... In huge ways, yep, but David confessed, got right with God again, and was able to keep going. So David ruled with justice, and he was righteous in the ways that he reached out. And that's incredible. Again, going back to to the, the business about every man doing what was right in his own eyes and that kind of a thing, and I'm looking at how David comes along and he's the answer to what the people have been seeking, someone who can help them focus on God. And I have to admit, after I read this verse, David did what was just right and all his people, I thought about, is there any politician that I would be able to say, yeah, he did what was just and right in all of his people. Now, I'm very cynical. You need to know that. When it comes to politics, I mean, I'm, I'm horribly cynical. I'm not going to even bring out names of any kind. But I was reading that verse and thought, wouldn't it be awesome to have someone like that who was ruling, someone like that who was uh, actually making a difference in our world by the way that they led. And that's why we pray. That's why we pray. And so all of those years running from Saul, all of those difficult times, not knowing if he was safe. Many times he was so close to Saul that they were around the uh, opposite sides of the same mountain. All those years where God, he had to turn to God, and all those times where bitterness and fear might have overwhelmed him. God was at work. God was shaping him and molding him and preparing him to be the leader of, of the whole nation, not just a group of 600 men or however many more had come. So God was at work shaping, molding him, and he was going to be able to lead the nation in following after God because he was following after God. 
And that is so critical. Sometimes we say, well, you, you need to do this, but we're not doing it. But we think you should do it. And David wasn't doing that. David wasn't saying, hey, you all need to follow God, but don't worry about me. I'm, I'll, I'll be fine. That's not the case. And David became the example to follow and the standard of measure for all of the rest of the kings. As you go through the books of Kings and Chronicles, you come across places like uh, 1 Kings 15, where it says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. All the way through. So that's the legacy David leaves behind from the best of times and those good times, which were numerous and many, many years of his reigns were exactly that. I had to kind of just stop at that point and ask myself, so do I do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Where do I find out what is right in the eyes of the Lord? And and the answer to that, we all know it, it's right here. But how often am I really going and saying, Lord, take your word and shape and mold me through your word? And I'm not saying that we have to sit down and spend five hours from three or four in the morning until the time we would normally get up. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if we're saying we want to have a heart after God, a good place to start is right here in, in His Word. And so I need to ask myself, how willing am I to do what God has said? Clearly in His Word. So I think the challenge here is may each of us live in a way that shows the people around us we're trying to do what is right according to God's standards the worst of times these are the worst of times Um, the first two kind of go hand in hand David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then he murders Uriah's her husband Uh, Uriah who by the way was one of David's mighty men part of the group of 30 that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 23 so David knew Uriah this was a one of those soldiers and men that he knew. So here you, you've got the situation. David's walking around. He looks down. He sees Bathsheba, sends a message to find out who she is. And this should have ended it right here. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That told David two things. This is someone's daughter, and this is someone's wife. And David, you have no business doing anything further at this point. To show you how badly David had slipped into sin at that point in time, verse 4 says, So David sent messengers, and the ESV puts it this way, and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, some translations use the word get, sent messengers to get her, but the literal translation of that word is to take. Right? So just let that be part of your thinking as you think through what that story was all about. Realize that um, <clears throat> David is, is the one who is pushing and moving this forward and wanting to do this. Of course, there are consequences of that, and and we aren't going to go into any of that today. Next one is, he did not deal with the sins of his children. His oldest son, Amnon, if you remember the story, uh, fell in love with his half-sister, at least. And, you know, he lusted after his half-sister, Tamar, and and at some point gets her alone, and and he rapes her. And David hears about it, and he's very angry. But it's his firstborn son. And he chooses not to do anything. Of course, then 
we find out that Amnon or that Tamar is the sister of Absalom. And Absalom is not going to let this thing lie. And if you remember what happens, Absalom uh, invites the brothers to come, and and uh, he comes with the brothers to Absalom's home, and and he's murdered. They kill him for having raped Tamar. Again, David's concerned about Absalom and what's happening to Absalom, and he goes into exile. At that point then, you know, there's a period of time that goes by. Eventually, Absalom comes back and starts a a rebellion against David, a rebellion that was so strong that they had to leave the capital city and just run for their lives until they could gather the army around again. And then, of course, they have the battles with uh, Absalom. And then there's this last event, which apparently takes place close to the end of his life. And I never really thought much about this one. Um, And it's the census. And I'm just going to share some things about why this was was wrong. I mean, we we have census all the time in this country for all kinds of reasons. But in this case, it's near the end of his life. And and, and it says in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 24, The Lord's anger burned against Israel again, so he was angry at them and there was judgment he had in mind. It says he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. Okay, it's interesting because in 1 Chronicles 12.1, it says that Satan stood up against Israel and cited David to count the people of Israel. Now, we're not told anything more than that. Okay, we're not told uh, Israel did this and they deserve judgment. We just know that God is upset. We know that God, in this case, it, it looks like what God was upset about was going to bring some judgment on David and the nation. And he used Satan, who was, who was doing something anyway, allowed Satan to continue doing what he was doing. And David gave into that temptation and sent people out to do the census. Now... It's interesting because when he says, I want you to go do the census, what did the guys that he wants to send out say? Don't do this thing. They know they shouldn't do it. And David sends them out to do it anyway. Now, I have a quote here that I I found really interesting. In that time and culture, a man only had the right to count that which actually belonged to him. So I couldn't go out and count all my neighbor's sheep or all my friend's cows They didn't belong to me. I had no business numbering them to try to figure out what they had. I can count my own herds and my own flocks and my own money. So, in that time and culture, a man only had the right to count that which actually belonged to him. Israel did not belong to David. Israel belonged to God. And so... That's one of the reasons why, you know, culturally that was expressed that way. But in in Exodus, it was the same thing. In Exodus, uh, God told Moses, hey, when you take a census of the Israelites and you count them, each one must pay a ransom. That word ransom is really probably better understood in our time frame as a tax. So you're counting the fighting men. You're not counting every man, woman, child, dog, and cat in the house. Just the guys that are going to go to war. That's what's being counted. Reason? If you got an army of, of 500,000 people coming at you and you only have 100,000, you don't go to war. You try to make peace. And so that was the reason why people did censuses. And um, in this case, you know, when God says, if you're going to do a census, then you make sure that each man pays, and it was a small amount, but you pay this tax uh, for his own life that's being counted. And look at the next phrase. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. 
And then you go back to Numbers chapter 1 where God did order a census and they paid the tax and nothing happened. Alright, so it takes nine months to do the census. There's 800,000 fighting men in all of the rest of the tribes, 500,000 fighting men in the tribe of Judah. And um, this quote's in your notes, so we'll skip that and go right to 2 Samuel 24, 10 and 11. After he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. David knew it was wrong too. He knew. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking the census. Please forgive me, Lord, my guilt. Lord, do, for doing this foolish thing. And the next morning, the Lord sends the prophet Gad to David. And he says to David, you've got three choices here. God's going to bring punishment. You can have three years of famine as the punishment. You can have three months of the, your enemies chasing you all around because you're losing to them. Or you can have three days of God bringing a deadly plague upon you. And David says, no contest, I'm taking God because God may show mercy. And so he asks for God to go ahead and do that. Now, he's not a perfect king, but he repented, he turned back. Chapter 24, verse 17, that the angel of the Lord has been going for two days, he's killed all kinds of people, he's getting close to Jerusalem now. And we don't know how David saw this, but he did. When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. But these people are innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and on my family. And that's when you begin to see what David's heart is like. He was wrong and sinful in what he asked for. But when he understood what he had done, there's this repentance and this calling on God not to punish other people for his sin. That's a powerful thing. And so I love David's confession here. I am the one who sinned. I'm the one that has done wrong. As a result of that, we learn later that 70,000 people lost their lives in those three days. In 2 Samuel 24, 18, um, Gad says to David, Listen, it's time, the plague has stopped. It's time for you to build an altar right here on this threshing ground, which belonged to Arauna. And, um, of course, he sees the king coming. And verse 21, he says, Why have you come, my lord king? And, and David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Okay, so this is right near Jerusalem. At that point in time, the wall hadn't gone that far. And so I think it's just outside of the wall, this area. And... Um, He's going to build a build a, uh, an altar there and offer sacrifices to God in, in thanksgiving and, and praise for the plague being stopped. Um, and and at that point, Aaron says, "Take it; it's yours. I, I give it all to you. You know, I'm I'm more than happy to be part of this." And and David refuses in verse 24. I insist on buying it, for I will not present a burnt offering to the Lord that has cost me nothing. I mean, the very word sacrifice implies cost. And David got that. If I offer a sacrifice and all I'm doing is offering somebody else's stuff, that's not me that's doing this. And so David pays for the threshing floor and pays for the oxen that are going to be sacrificed and pays for the wood that he's going to use to burn up the oxen on the sacrifice. Verse 25, David built an altar, uh, sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the Lord answered his prayer for the land and the plague was stopped. 
Um, later on tells us that he also bought all the surrounding land besides just the threshing floor. Now, <clears throat> how could David offer a sacrifice that um, cost him nothing? Think about that. You know, when we offer something to God, whether it's our time, our effort, our finances, there is an implied cost to us in that. When, when we decide that we're going to fast as a way of worship and as a way of getting, taking some time to get closer to God, there's a cost to us in that. And one of my elders in Detroit that said one time, I don't know that he ever said it publicly, but he said, you know, you've got people that pay more for their cable TV bills than they give in the offering. Something's wrong. And uh, I, I remember looking at him and thinking, first of all, I don't know what people are giving anyway, but <laughs> I was thinking about that and I thought, I do understand what you're saying when it comes to, am I offering to God something that, yeah, it's just what's left over, whether it's time or effort or finances. So there was a cost that David was very aware of. The meaning of sacrifice meant cost. And I think what David was saying was, I will not offer God what's left over. I will not offer to God something that isn't mine to offer. How in the world can I offer his stuff as if it was mine? I can't. And so David built the altar, offered the sacrifices, and um, God saw that and was favorable to that, and the plague stopped. Now, interesting thing, that exact spot is thought by many to be the place where Abraham offered Isaac. Fast forward, after David's sacrifice, it's also the place where Solomon built the temple. So there's some connection all the way through there historically with Israel that this was going to be a place that God was going to use in some powerful way. So one of the things that struck me, and this is that David sinned and he confessed, trusted the mercy of God, and that decided to try to live and honor God from that point on. What do we take away from this? Here are the lessons that I saw, and these are kind of random, and and uh, I hope they're, they're encouraging and helpful. But <clears throat> first of all, David acknowledged and confessed his sin. Read what Saul acted like and read what David acted like when they were confronted. You know, Elijah come, or Samuel comes to, to Saul and says, You know, uh, you were told to kill all these animals. Yeah, 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 but I brought them so that I want to sacrifice them to the Lord. And he had all kinds of excuses. Someone comes to David and says, David, this is sin. And David immediately says, You're right. I was wrong. Matter of fact, sometimes nobody even comes. David sees that the census has come back and he realizes, what have I done? And he confesses. And First John 1 John 1.9, speaking to us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. What an amazing God we have that he will cleanse. And so whether it's sins of the heart or sins of the mind, sins of our words or our actions, we say, I have sinned, Lord God. This is what I did or said or thought. And I am wrong, please Forgive me and restore that relationship that I have with you. Second thing, forgiveness does not remove the consequences of sin. It removes the guilt, restores the relationship, but sometimes the consequences go on. In David's case, there were consequences in his family and in the nation because of some of the sin that he committed. He was forgiven, he was restored, he walked with God again, but there were still things that happened. And Galatians 6-7, Philip's translation says this, Don't be under any illusion. You cannot make a fool of God. A man's harvest in life will depend entirely on what he sows. 
And that's just a powerful statement. And that's true for the Christian. We're forgiven, and we have a relationship that's restored, but, you know, there are things that, that just don't go immediately away. It takes time sometimes. God wants us, the next one, God wants us to be truly trusting Him and obeying Him. And David shows us that, didn't he, when he was getting ready to go and, and, and attack Goliath, and, and he says to Goliath, hey, you're coming at me with sword and spear and javelin, and all, you're huge and all this stuff, but you know what? I come against you in the name of the Lord of the God and the host of heaven's armies. And so he says, I'm, I'm trusting God to do what he's going to do in you. And, of course, he takes the giant down, and then the, the army rallies, and they're able to... Um, Defeat the Philistines. Another thing that I think David shows us, and that's that one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference. David shows up at the front lines uh, when Goliath has been doing this for 40 days. He's been out there yelling and screaming and hollering and challenging, and they just run away. And so David shows up there. He says, God can do this. And he goes down. Of course, God does it. And what happens? The nation then comes behind him and says, okay, now we can fight like we're supposed to fight. And they chase the Philistines um, and, and basically have a victory as they chase them all the way home. And then again, what, going back to David, you know, the times that he sins, I love the fact how transparent Scripture is. You know, that's one of the things that we say about why we know it's God's words, because nobody who was trying to talk about their amazing king would put the stuff in there. They'd gloss it over or take it out. Not God. God wants us to learn from the mistakes of a man like King David. But one of the things we do learn from him is that when the prophets came to him and said, you've sinned, David said, you're right, I have. And then he went ahead and did what needed to be done. So just kind of those are the things from, from David's life that I think we can learn. There are many other lessons as well. Um, from this point on, we're going to look at just various kings briefly as we look at lessons from their lives. But may the Lord teach us <clears throat> the things that we learned from David this morning. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. And thank you for the, the opportunity that we have to love and honor you and follow you. And Lord, help us to do that faithfully and help us to do it in a way that honors you. We ask it in your name. Amen.